You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. It is the last day of June, if I'm not mistaken. Pull up my calendar. Yep. Yes, indeedy. You better believe it. Tomorrow is the first day of July. And that means also we are coming up on the 4th of July. I don't think we have any plans at all for Independence Day as yet. Need to reach out to my brother and my dad and see if they would like to get together and grill some hot dogs or hamburgers or watch fireworks or what their plans are. But more on that to come as we get closer to the 4th of July. I'd like to talk about the war for independence and what it means and what it's about, whether it's good, whether it was rebellion and therefore ungodly, as some Christians increasingly believe and say. I have encountered more Christians since moving to Colorado who hold that view, by the way, which is interesting that they hold that view that the war for independence was rebellion and revolution. I have some thoughts on that, so stay tuned for upcoming episodes. Hit the subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice, and you can catch that episode when it comes out soon. But for now, I want to talk about my wallet. (laughs) No, this is not an advertisement. I actually don't even know where they got this wallet for me, but my wife and kids bought me a new wallet for Father's Day this year. And it's leather. It smells great. You can't smell it, but I can. And uh, let me just tell you, it smells like leather. And leather smells good. So there's a win. But uh, there's more, actually. There's more than just it smelling like leather. There's also the fact that my initials, are etched into the front of the wallet, G-A-M, looks very nice. And then when you open it, something I like even better than just my initials etched into the front, Proverbs 28.1 is engraved on the inside. Not just the reference, but also the verse itself. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. I love Proverbs 28.1. And I've said many times, I hope to live my life in such a way that it would not be untoward for this scripture to be etched into my tombstone as well. I'm not going to live forever just yet. I expect to, actually, uh, in the grand scheme of things, by God's grace. But when I pass on, provided the Lord doesn't return in the meantime, before then, or call me home, uh through the rapture or what have you, I would like this written on my tombstone and I hope that I live up to it. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. In the New Testament, I think of what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1, 6-7. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, not a spirit of fear. Some translations say, not a spirit of timidity, 
but of power and love and self-control. So on this question of boldness and timidity, I want to talk about an article from the Gospel Coalition that was sent to me yesterday by my neighbor, two houses down, J.P. Chavez. God bless you, J.P. You're a gentleman and a scholar. Titled, After Roe, Choose Compassion Over Culture War. This piece was written by a James Forsyth, who I am not familiar with at all, but it was published this Tuesday in the wake of the recent Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, which was announced once and for all, finally, last Friday. We knew that it was coming a long ways ahead of time. Someone leaked the draft decision several weeks ago. How long has it been? feels like it's been months. That might be because it's been months since it was released in an effort to pressure the Supreme Court to not overturn Roe v. Wade. But James Forsyth says we should choose compassion over culture war. And let's just go ahead and read through his article, and then we will think through his article together, because this is maybe deceptively important in my view. This is important, very, very important, and it has to do with the sentiment described in that passage from Paul's letter to Timothy, and it also has to do with the sentiment inherent to Proverbs 28.1, quote, I'm pregnant, end quote. My girlfriend's words left me in shock. We sat in the grass at a park on a beautiful spring day, but my feelings didn't match the setting. I understood her words, but I couldn't wrap my heart or mind around them. This can't be right. Surely there's been some mistake. Yes, actually, there was a mistake. I, Garrett speaking for a moment. I'll just interject here. Yes, there, there was a mistake. This is true. This is true. You, your girlfriend's words left you in shock. Surely there must be a mistake. There was. Continuing on. In seconds, the shock gave way to fear. As teenagers, we didn't understand a percentage of the implications we'd later live through, but we immediately knew life would never be the same. My thoughts and our conversation began to race. How could this have happened? Was she sure? What on earth should we do next? Fearful questions soon led us to despair. We both lived with our parents. How could we be parents? We were both kids. How could we have a child? We knew we didn't have the maturity to deal with this, and we certainly didn't have the financial resources to make it work. Unsure of what to do, our first step was an appointment with a doctor. Here our shock, fear, and despair were confirmed. Then the doctor offered a way out, a deceptive word of hope. You know, you could have an abortion, he said. How I wish I could now write about our deep commitment to life, of how we rejected the suggestion immediately and boldly blazed a different path, but that's not what hopeless teenagers do. When you have no options, abortion feels like a solution. In last week's 6-3 to ruling, the Supreme Court found there's no constitutional right to an abortion. Access will now be determined by each state with roughly half poised to eliminate or significantly restrict the number of abortions performed within their borders. Christians on both sides of the aisle should welcome this ruling. Our views on abortion aren't to be shaped by our politics, but by the value God places on life. He made humanity in his image. Every human soul possesses unspeakable value, dignity, and worth. But as we welcome this ruling, we must be measured in our response. Now isn't the time for the church to beat its chest in celebration of a victory in the culture war. 
this is a moment for us to step up in love. What might this look like? Here are three suggestions. Now, before we get into the three suggestions, I want to just deal with these first two sections. Before you give me suggestions, let's deal with your premise. If your premise is faulty, then your practical ideas for how to act out your premise will also be amiss. So we should make sure the premise is sound first. You tell a story, a personal story of you impregnating your girlfriend as a teenager, her also being a teenager, and you describe very plausible, very real, very understandable feelings of shock and fear and worry and despair. You describe going to the doctor and the doctor telling you, you could get an abortion and this will all go away. And you admit briefly, you wish you could now write about your deep commitment to life and how you rejected the suggestion immediately and boldly blazed a different path. And you don't yet tell us what you actually did do, except perhaps you and your girlfriend got an abortion. If you did get an abortion and you're feeling really, really tore up about that because it was traumatic and painful and you realize now what you did back then, I can understand how celebrating Roe v. Wade being overturned reminds you of your own shame at what you did and at at what you participated actively and passively in having done to your unborn child. You were not going to be a father. You were a father, at least in that moment. Your girlfriend was not going to be a mother. She was a mother in that moment. That pregnancy was not a pregnancy in the abstract that was going to result in a child. That was a child already. So I come to your section titled, After the Ruling, What Now? And I'm glad that you affirm we should welcome this ruling, but I reject the suggestion that celebration on this is first and foremost in the abstract about winning a culture war for Christians. Now isn't the time for the church to beat its chest in celebration. Why? 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 And for that matter, will you go on to say that it's never appropriate for Christians to beat their chests in celebration? You describe the overturning of Roe v. Wade as a victory in the culture war. Is that what it is first and foremost? For some people it may be, but I don't know those people. They're not in my circle. So this feels a bit like character assassination for those who have been opposed to abortion for a long time, for loud and long and clear arguments having been made for a long time that abortion is murder and that it is a blemish, to put it mildly, on our national character and on the character of the church, that there has been so much silence, so much complicity in the mass murder of over 60 million of our infants in 50 years. That's just in the U.S. That is not counting the number who have been aborted around the world because Margaret Sanger's Planned Parenthood and others inspired by a Planned Parenthood used our tax dollars to promote eugenics 
in countries like China and India. I don't even know what the death toll is around the world. Margaret Sanger was an American, but the death toll due to her leadership and influence arguably outstrips Hitler's, Stalin's, Mao's. She is arguably the worst villain of the 20th century because of her outsized influence, not just here in the U.S., but around the world. Whether we're talking about New Age spirituality, or the sexual revolution, or gender theory, or socialism, or eugenics, or abortion, she is responsible for tens of millions of innocent lives lost, not lost actually, taken deliberately, intentionally, systematically, on purpose, with premeditation for decades. If putting a stop to that, or pumping the brakes on that, or stemming the tide of bloodshed, of murder, after all these years, after a great deal of not just ink spilled, but real men and women suffering to bring an end to abortion in the U.S., and suffering socially, professionally, politically as a result, losing relationships and contracts and opportunities and positions and offices and authority, having real consequences visited on them and their loved ones because they opposed abortion, because they opposed the Democrats in particular for their championing of abortion, their support of abortion, their advocacy of abortion. If it is not appropriate to beat our chests in celebration at the overturning of Roe v. Wade, when is it? Or is it never? If this were an actual war, and we were talking about VE Day, would you say now isn't the time for the church to beat its chest in celebration? If this were the collapse of the Berlin Wall all over again, would you say this is not the time for the church to beat its chest in celebration? If this were the close of the Civil War and the guarantee that the Emancipation Proclamation would actually liberate untold millions of black men, women, and children to eventually take part in full citizenship, equal protection under the law here in America, you knew that the winning of the Civil War by the Union, by the North, by forces led by the likes of Ulysses S. Grant, William Tecumseh Sherman, if you would not beat your chest in celebration of a victory in those kinds of wars, when would you? Especially when you consider the death tolls in those wars were far less, and those wars were far shorter than the war culturally to overturn Roe v. Wade. If now is not a time for celebration, then when is? But let's continue. You say we need to step up in love, as if that is not what we are doing if we celebrate this victory, you have three suggestions for what that looks like practically. Disarm with compassion is number one. Quote, as access to abortion becomes more limited, an untold number of women, sometimes supported by partners, but typically alone, will find themselves in crisis. In shock, fear, and despair, they're now without the only option that seemed to offer hope. Let's be clear, these women are not and have not ever been the enemy. Our heart toward them must be loving. The celebratory fanfare of a political culture warrior may make judgmental Christians feel better about themselves 
but it does little to help these women. Worse, it may serve to make the church the last place a hurting woman would turn for help. This is the time to be like Jesus, who is gentle and lowly in heart. Let's show women in crisis the same compassion Christ has shown to us. All right, let's deal with these one at a time. I don't want to read through all three of them and go back through. We'll deal with these one at a time. Now isn't the time for the church to beat its chest in celebration of a victory in the culture war. This is a moment for us to step up in love. So here is one of the things that I'm in agreement on, but with some checks and balances, because others do not have any checks and balances on what they mean by this. For a long time, the establishment, well-funded, well-organized, supported by polite, respectable, wealthy, well-connected donors, pro-life movement, has maintained that a woman who gets an abortion or seeks to get an abortion should not be regarded as a criminal or a villain or a bad person. Might I suggest to you that there is a kind of soft bigotry of low expectations if we say, with regards to women, they must be equal to men in all ways, and yet they should not be equally accountable for their own actions. There's a kind of infantilizing of women when we say they should be equal to men, but if they make a mistake or they do an evil thing, they shouldn't be equally responsible for their actions. It does not make sense. You cannot have it both ways. You have to pick one. Now, imagine a scenario, not hard to imagine, where a teenage girl finds herself pregnant, unmarried, as the vast majority of teenage girls in the U.S. are, for better or worse. I think when we look at the arc of history, it's arguably for the worse. But we tell our young women that they need to finish high school and go to college. And if at all possible, we will celebrate them more and more the more advanced their degrees are and the more authority they have over men and women in a big corporation, which is to say that our priorities are wealth and status for our daughters, not being wives and mothers. We do not, the vast majority of us, even in the church, raise our daughters to someday be women of God, according to the scriptures, loving and submitting to their husbands as their husbands love and submit to Christ in everything the scriptures say. That we say, is demeaning. And yet we don't bat an eye. We don't even consider that it might be demeaning to suggest that a woman could literally have her child murdered and should still not be regarded as at fault. She's not responsible for her actions. Why? Because she's just a woman? What are you getting at there? What's the implicit assumption? Is that not actually sexism? Is that not actually the soft bigotry of low expectations? Or what will we say every year for Father's Day in churches across America, a continuation of the drum beating, which started with the temperance movement, continues apace, and men are reminded of what failures they are. Yes, we need you, but you really are not doing your job. But then we come to Mother's Day, and mothers can do no wrong, even when it comes to abortion, if they literally have their child aborted. They can do no wrong. They literally are supposed to get away with murder, according to the establishment pro-life movement leadership for decades. 
And it's just this kind of self-defeating, faulty logic, internally inconsistent, unreasonable, that wants what it wants and doesn't feel any special need to explain itself or answer hard questions because, after all, it has the funding, it has the backing of wealthy, important, high-status people, it brands itself as the kind, compassionate, loving face of the drive against abortion. No, no. When we think abortion, we need to be picturing men like Kermit Gosnell, not women like Casey Anthony. And yet, if we were honest, every abortion, if it is in fact murder, makes the mother who has aborted her child much more like Casey Anthony and not at all like Mary, the mother of Jesus, the wife of Joseph. And yet we're told that the kindest, most loving, most compassionate way we could talk to and regard and treat even the women who have got abortions and want to keep on getting abortions. Some women get abortions again and again and again and again. And even increasingly in recent years, recent months, as it has become clear that conservatives in this country, particularly conservative Christians, wanted to overturn Roe v. Wade when Trump promised on the debate stage in the run-up to the 2016 election that he would appoint two or three Supreme Court justices who would overturn Roe v. Wade, and the question would go back to the states, we have seen more and more beautiful actresses who stop being beautiful in proportion to their telling of their own abortion stories and how they would not be the successful, wealthy, famous, beautiful women that they are if they had not had access to abortion. In effect, what they're admitting is that they murdered their children in the womb so that they could be wealthy and famous and beautiful and party and have everyone speak well of them. And an uncareful application of the first of these three ideas by James Forsyth to disarm with compassion would have us treating those women as if they are victims in a paternalistic way, which is ironic and hypocritical because it can think of nothing more distasteful more offensive, more oppressive than the patriarchy. I personally believe that patriarchy is God's design for the family, for the church, for society at large. And when I read outlier examples of women having authority over their families, the church, the nation, it is an indictment on the moral failures of men that they have contented themselves with pursuing their own gratification. Living in fear, not, not out of a spirit of power and love and self-control. No, but of selfishness and fear, self-indulgence and vanity and fear. I'll note as well, it would seem James Forsyth is exactly the kind who makes Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, popular we want a Christ who is compassionate so that we can be only affirming and compassionate and conciliatory. But let's not talk about what he will be like when he comes again a second time to judge, to rule, to reign. Let's not talk about King Jesus and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. No, 
we prefer the book of Judges, where everyone does what's right in their own eyes and affirms their neighbor and calls it love. Point number two, act personally. Millions of Christians in America and across the world work tirelessly and heroically to care for unwanted children, provide for single mothers, and love those in distress. The notion that evangelicals won't lift a finger to help hurting people has been weaponized to dismiss Christians, but it's a lie. The world's poor, sick, vulnerable, marginalized, and displaced receive immeasurable help from believers. Yet now is not a time for the church to pat itself on the back. Instead, it's time for us to redouble our efforts. Reach out to your local pregnancy center, pray for and encourage those who've been on the front lines, find out about their needs, increase the amount of money you give, and volunteer to serve. Also, reach out to foster and adoption agencies, consider fostering or adopting yourself, and find ways to offer practical support for families in your church who've done so. Support pro-life ministry, like, like lives depend on it. An army of believers has already taken to the field. Now it's time for each of us to act. Okay, so here he's half right, and I agree with the half of what he's saying that is right. He is correct that it is a lie that evangelical Christians in America don't lift a finger to help hurting people. That is a leftist talking point peddled by atheists who hate God and accordingly hate God's people, and they want an entirely purely secular society where they have a free hand and no one with moral courage or what the Apostle Paul describes in his letter to Timothy, a spirit of power and love and self-control confronts them or disagrees with them or tries to save their would-be victims. They don't like feeling guilty or ashamed of anything because it really harshes the groove. It really kills the buzz that they prefer to live on all the time. But James Forsyth here says, now is not a time for the church to pat itself on the back. Who's doing that? Who is doing that? Again, I don't know these people. They are not in my circle. I don't see people in my circle patting themselves on the back. But what I do see is I see a lot of folks who have been marginalized for speaking up for innocent children. They've been marginalized. They've lost their jobs. They've lost contracts. They've lost friendships. They've lost relationships with family. They've been removed from churches or professorships. They've been called Neanderthals, like the governor of the state of New York recently called pro-lifers, Neanderthals, even in the wake of attacks on pregnancy centers across the U.S., violent attacks, destructive attacks. At a certain point, you have to play the man, and you have to do more than just volunteer, I'm sorry, in a weak way. At a certain point, you have to gird up your loins and protect but this is the trouble that comes in a half-truth. We think that compassion is only ever a soft word. It is only ever a warm hug. It is only ever being nice. And all the while, what's missed is fear of man can drive those things. It does not have to be love of man and love of God. Love of the world can drive that. But just because you're nice, that doesn't mean that you've demonstrated thereby a genuine care and concern for the well-being of those who are being led away to the slaughter, those who are being deceived, those who are being taken captive, those who are dead and dying in their sins. The half that he's right about, we should do. And yet, where he insists that that is the only appropriate posture of the church and of Christians, what he does 
is condemn those who are celebrating, those who are, as he would describe it, patting themselves on the back. And it reminds me of somebody who has made really bad choices and it galls them and they feel jealous and they feel envious when someone else makes good choices and does well. Just because you're feeling bad about yourself, that does not mean it is that person's fault that they made the right choices and they're enjoying the fruits of their labors now and they're celebrating the moment. Also too, there's a kind of resignation to conservatives being always defeated. What it reminds me of is when the children of Israel are delivered from the promised land and they get out into the wilderness and they turn on Moses and Aaron and they grumble against Moses and Aaron. It reminds me of when the 12 spies are sent into Canaan and they come back and 10 say, there are giants in the land. It's an exceedingly good land, but there are giants in the land and we are like grasshoppers in their eyes. They are too strong for us. And the host of Israel says, we should pick up stones and stone Joshua and Caleb and Moses and Aaron, and we should get new leaders. We should elect new leadership that will take us back to Egypt because we've been led out into the desert, into the wilderness to be slaughtered by giants, apparently. That's what it reminds me of, is when the two spies out of 12 give a good report, and they say that God has brought us this far, and he can give us this land, and he can give these giants over to us, to dispose of. In fact, that's why he's brought us here. When those two spies give a good report, the rest of the host of Israel, the people of Israel, the assembled men and women of Israel want to kill them for it. Why is that? Because all of a sudden they look very cowardly and they feel ashamed or they're tempted to feel ashamed and they should be ashamed of themselves, but they would rather be defeated and go back to Egypt then trust God and move forward and possess the land. In fact, they want that so badly that they will even come up with very pseudo-spiritual explanations for why those who say, no, God can give Canaan into our hands, are actually unspiritual, carnal, triumphalist, fleshly. They want you to do the half that they do, They don't want you to go any further than they do because it makes them look bad. It also reminds me of when David is sent by his father, Jesse, to bring food to his brothers in the armies of Israel, camped over and against the armies of the Philistines. He starts asking questions about this giant from Gath named Goliath standing between the two armies as it's apparent that no one in the army of Israel is going to face this guy. No one's going to go out and fight him. Saul, who is king, who is head and shoulders taller than every other man in the nation, is hiding in his tent like a coward because he doesn't feel confident that he's got what it takes in and of himself to defeat Goliath. David, who is fresh from shepherding his father's flocks, thinks first and foremost about how God has given wild animals into his hand when they came against his father's sheep. And he transposes his faithfulness and his trust in God in those situations when predators showed up to eat his father's sheep. He transposes his trust in God, his faithfulness to God, his love for God, his allegiance 
to God in those situations as he carried out his duties onto this situation. And he's going to volunteer to fight Goliath on behalf of Israel, on behalf of God, more to the point. And what do David's brothers tell him? Go home. We don't need you here. You're just making trouble. You're embarrassing us. Boy, does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar or what? That is exactly what the abolitionists contingent in the American church has had to contend with when it comes to the response from the timidly named pro-life movement. We're pro-life. Oh, great. Me too. That's why I'm an abolitionist. No, you know what? Like That's not a good way to go about it. Why don't, why don't you just go home? You're causing trouble. No, I want to fight the giant. No, 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 no. Who told you you could be here, by the way? Do you have a pass? Aren't you supposed to be watching the sheep where you belong? Riffraff? Low class? You don't know how this works. Why don't you leave it to the experts? That guy's run big, wealthy, successful businesses. He knows. This lady, she's got great connections in the community and around the country. Yeah, she's she's going to be calling the shots here. You, you're upsetting people. You're actually hurting our cause by being logically consistent. If it's murder, it's murder. If it's murder, it's murder. But we can't have it both ways where you say, well, it's murder, but I don't think that mothers should be held liable and criminally responsible or punished if they murder their children. How far does that extend? Is that all the way up to 18 years old? The mother wants to murder her child all the way up to 18? She's off the hook? Well, no, of course not. Well then, what's your argument? God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. But boy, howdy, is it hard to act like it sometimes when we spiritualize cowardice? Really hard. Really hard to follow what Paul says here to Timothy. Fanning into flame the gift of God. Uh, flame, why, why do you, ah, man, flame is so <sighs> hot. Can't we just go with a lukewarm approach? That way we can appeal to people who like cold and they like hot. Just mix it all together, lukewarm. That's going to be the most successful, don't you think? No, actually. He says fan into flame. All scriptures breathed out by God. Also, I feel like I read somewhere, I would that you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. As in, I'm going to vomit you. You make me want to vomit, is what our Lord says to the lukewarm church at Laodicea. I would that you were hot or cold. There's a sense in which the lukewarm, the tepid, the timid advocacy of righteousness and goodness and repentance and justice is worse than the folks who are literally bombing pregnancy centers because they're angry about Roe v. Wade being overturned. There's a sense in which at least you can say the pro-abortion, anti-life crowd is really, really sold out on what they believe. But the ambivalent, kinder, gentler, gentler and lowlier pro-life response that just doesn't want anybody to be upset, even if we're talking about lives depending on it. Let's save people's lives. Let's save innocent children's lives. So long as we can do it without upsetting anyone, so long as we don't have to offend anybody or pay a personal cost or upset anyone, can we do it that way? Can we, can we, is that an option? Can we call for repentance winsomely? Moving on. Point number three, organize corporately. 
Is your church ready to help the hurting in your community? If not, this is the moment to get our houses of worship in order, put structures for mercy ministry in place so those with needs receive prompt attention and care, cover rent, buy groceries and diapers, and host events to pamper single moms. Build friendships so no one is left isolated or alone. Broadcast your desire to help too. Advertise it. Help your community see that your church is the place people should come when they don't know where else to turn. Now, I don't necessarily have a problem with the practical ideas here, okay? I don't have <laughs> I don't have a problem with if we've got a single mother who chose life and she is raising this child on her own because the dad does not want to be involved at all. I don't have a problem with us saying, you know what, we're going to encourage her, we're going to help her any way we can. But what I do have a problem with is us missing the point. And the point is, there's nothing in here about dealing with the root causes. We're just going to address the symptoms. And this is the gospel coalition. Be nice to people. There's your testimony. Be nice to people. Do things that will make them like you. Be the kindest most positive, encouraging, K-love Christian you can possibly be, and that's it. And if you go beyond that, well, then you're not even a Christian, maybe. Watch out. Watch out. I mean, the, the, the trouble I have here is not that we would say we're going to help single mothers with rent. We're going to help them get groceries and diapers. I'm all for that. I am all for that. Host events to pamper single moms. I don't know about that. How about maybe try and get them a husband who's a good godly man, who loves Jesus, who's going to provide for them and protect them and lead them and raise those kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That that sounds like a that sounds like a better option. In fact, we read some precedent for not just giving willy-nilly to young widows, actually, in the New Testament, because they will be corrupted by it. I mean like that's Long and short of it, they'll be corrupted by it. Sometimes help is not helpful. Sometimes the most helpful thing you could do is find some young lady a husband and find some young guy a wife and teach them how to be married and how to raise children and teach them that it's not just a matter of being nice because sometimes there's hard work to do and you got to roll up your sleeves and sometimes you got to tell people no. Sometimes you have to tell people no. This is like the Dr. Spock approach to Christianity. That, that's what's the, the trouble here. And that doesn't mean we should be spiritually abusive. In fact, that's another thing we are going to get more into. You can go back and check out my last episode about Jordan Hall being removed as pastor. And I happen to have some details that I cannot share at this time, but I hope to be able to share them soon about why and what happened there, what finally led to Fellowship Baptist Church in Sydney, Montana, accepting his resignation. I have a track record, years and years long, of opposing abusive ministers, abusive churches. We should not be abusing people and then calling that Christianity. But nor should we be neglecting people, right? There's two different kinds of abuse. There's active abuse and there's passive abuse. Active abuse is you're literally pounding on this person And you're destroying them with your words and with your actions. You're assaulting them. You're tearing them down, literally tearing them down, beating them up. But there's also neglect. And for too long, the church in America has neglected. No, you you don't get to just say it's enough that you're not abusing people. You also have to not neglect them. 
And when Jesus says, if you love me, feed my sheep, to Peter, we ought to think about what all is meant by that with regards to the whole counsel of God. The gospel, and no more, is also addressed in the New Testament. When we say that the gospel is strictly speaking, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Jesus died for your sins. Believe in him and you're a Christian. And we spend a lot of time talking about being nice, providing for material needs, supporting, encouraging. That's good. That's good. And the abusive folks who don't know how to do that or refuse to, they'll try and convince you that that's not so good sometimes because, again, they're jealous or it makes them feel embarrassed. They don't like feeling like someone else might be a better Christian than they are in some ways or doing something that they can't do or they're not very good at. But this is two sides of the same coin. We have to affirm what is good. Yes, yes. Also, we have to reject what is evil. And we have to make that a part of the discipleship process. Not in a legalistic way, but boy howdy, we are dealing with so much more antinomianism than legalism these days. The therapeutic age wants to psychologize all of our sins to where there is no such thing as sin, in which case you don't need a savior, in which case there is no gospel. You've invalidated and hollowed out what you said you were about and what you were going to stick to because it's just feelings. It's cotton candy, Christianity. Yeah, it's sweet, but it's nothing you can go out and actually do work on. And when somebody is trying to bomb your pregnancy center that you volunteered at so studiously, and God bless you for it, when somebody is trying to firebomb your pregnancy center or assassinate Supreme Court justices, you have to have a robust Christian worldview that's informed by the whole counsel of God or else you are a sheep without a shepherd, which is also talked about in the scriptures. What does that mean? A sheep without a shepherd? It means there is no plan in place at all with regards to you to protect you when the predators come, when the equivalent of the bear and the wolf and the lion shows up to devour you. We rejected all that martial language. We called it militancy. And if someone did step up like a David, we got jealous of them because we're more like Saul. I mean, there's another analogy for you. I think what you have in the pro-life movement and its relation to abolitionists is all too often a similar dynamic to King Saul and young David. Remember that Saul wanted to murder David because he heard the people chanting, Saul has killed his thousands, David has tens of thousands. And by the way, like let's just remember, that is also to say that there is a time for war, as Ecclesiastes says. As Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, there is a time for peace. Yes, yes, yes. But that time is not when you just say peace, peace, and you wish cast it, but there is no peace. The time for war very often has to be confronted manfully. The loins have to be girded up, or you don't get the time for peace. You get peace, peace, but there is no peace. Moving on. The church at its best. A church community that did all these things saved our pregnancy. They saved my daughter's life. They helped fearful teens become delighted parents. The first time I held my little girl, she stared up into my face. I felt the weight. Though our small gift was only six pounds, her life is a lasting glory. Years later, our wee girl has grown into a nurse who cares for others. How grateful I am we didn't follow that doctor's advice. I still feel shame over how much appeal the offer of an abortion found in my fearful heart. I'm grateful Jesus offered a better path through our families, pastors, and supportive church members. Love came to us through Christ's body, his ever so beautiful church. My prayer is 
That's what will be in response to the Supreme Court's ruling. The church at its very best. Christ's compassion embodied for a hurting world. All right. Well, they chose life. Good. James Forsyth is the senior pastor at Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. You can follow him on Twitter at James W. Forsyth. I can't. I I can't, actually. I, I can't, but maybe you can. By the way, Jordan Peterson also recently suspended from Twitter as of yesterday because he allegedly misgendered Ellen Page, who now goes by Elliot Page, and just recently had a double mastectomy because Ellen Page, born female, now identifies as a man. Jordan Peterson is promising to never delete the tweet. He will be allowed back on Twitter with a strike against him if he deletes the tweet, but he is saying he will never delete the tweet. Also, I am still suspended from Twitter indefinitely. It was supposed to be a 12-hour suspension. It's turned into months later. I don't even know how long it's been at this point. All because I tweeted at Chris Jolly Hale, also from Tennessee, failed Democrat candidate for Congress. With all due respect, at Chris Jolly Hale, what a retarded thing to say. Because he was calling for the resignation of Marsha Blackburn, senator from Tennessee, after she asked Katanji Brown-Jackson, Biden's Supreme Court nominee, if she could define what a woman is. And Chris Jolly Hale said that Marsha Blackburn should be removed and replaced by the people of Tennessee because she asked a Supreme Court nominee to define what a woman is. The feigning of ignorance and the insistence on no one ever being offended, hurt, upset, angry, and that we will call love. That we will call the church being on its best behavior. Is that Christianity? Is that biblical? Is that biblical? It's not biblical if you're always trying to inflict discomfort on other people. And this is exactly, this is, in a nutshell, the trouble with Jordan Hall from Sydney, Montana. He intentionally tries to say things to inflict emotional discomfort, to implant doubts in the minds of his opponents and his followers so that any who would oppose him, disagree with him, detract from his seeming like the smartest, bravest person in the room or in the country or in the world will keep quiet and his followers will give him ever more time and attention. It's wrong to do that. That's abusive. It's manipulative. And he is also a threatening person. He's a menace. That's not the church at its best. Although he would insist that if we were all like him, that would be for the best because he wants to be the most important, famous person. He wants to be the special, if you've seen the Lego movie. Well, he is special, true enough, but he's abusive. And he shouldn't be allowed to abuse people the way that he is. And he shouldn't have allies with other people who help him by their support, by lending credibility to him. He should not be helped. He shouldn't be followed. He shouldn't be affirmed. But see, that's see, that's just the problem here. Like the church at its best, if it is only ever capable of telling men like that, you're not being your best self right now. You actually are also actively supporting him in your own way. Because there's a lot of Christians around the country who follow Jordan Hall, 
who listen to him, who want him to pull through this scandal right now. They want him to crop back up, back home in Missouri or someplace, start a new church, take up leadership over a new church, come back stronger and more powerful and more menacing than ever because they're tired of the power of positive thinking, name it and claim it, emotional equivalent of the prosperity gospel type Christianity. They're tired of the K-Love Christianity, which is born of the ecumenical movement post-World War I, World War II, the equivalent ecclesiastically of the League of Nations and the United Nations. Keep it superficial, keep it sweet, keep it short. They don't want Martin Lloyd-Jones' Christianity on K-Love. They will play Stephen Furtick-type Christianity all day. And they'll water that down too, because well, you know, like some of the stuff he says that'll upset our more conservative folk. So we'll snip that stuff out. But by golly, they're not gonna have publicly the kinds of conversations that they have behind closed doors where they say, Well, I don't think we should go with that because it's distasteful. Well, you can't say that publicly because that would be actually not very encouraging. It would upset people, it would offend people. Now remember again, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. For what? Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. This is Paul writing, by the way. Paul is not a works righteousness guy. He is not a legalistic guy. In fact, he's very often accused of lawlessness by the Pharisees and the circumcision party, who he opposes forcefully, even to the point of mocking them. Yes, I would say mocking. I would call it mocking. When he says, I would that those who trouble you about circumcision would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Ooh, burn to a good end. Teaching. Okay, well, teaching, eh, we can keep that positive. Keep, Keep the teaching positive. We'll talk about living your best life now, the church being at its best, you being your best self, you having the best emotions, you having the best reputation, you having the best connections, you having the best funding, you having the best marketing campaign, you having the best sleep at night because you sleep on a Tempur-Pedic, in part because your career is intact and going places, your business is thriving, your social network is intact, your family's all talking to you, and you like it that way. But what else? Reproof. How many Christians in America today, I'll just, I'll pose this as a question. I'm not even going to answer the question. I don't know the answer to the question, but how many Christians in America today even know the definition of the word reproof? Reproof. It's in here. We know what teaching is. We get a lot of teaching. Do we know what reproof is? If all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, don't we want to profit from all scripture? Didn't God have a good purpose for giving us all scripture? What's this reproof you speak of? I don't even know what that is. Maybe you don't know what it is because we haven't been doing it at all. Just a thought. Go look it up. Did you know what reproof was? Do you know how to do it? Do you know where in the scriptures we might look for that kind of profit, that kind of benefit? How about correction? All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for correction. Well, you know, <clears throat> see the trouble. The trouble with correction is <laughs> it will offend some people, and they will feel like. You're saying they were not correct, right? And that's just like, that's not very encouraging. 
I don't, you know, see, this was a trouble that I had with an elder at the church that I was a deacon at several years ago. I served as a deacon and on the governing board of the church for two years. And at a certain point, I wrote him a very direct letter because he had implied that I had an agenda against his family. I had an ax to grind against his family or something, something to that effect. But he had implied it at a governing board meeting. And I didn't debate the point right then and there in front of the rest of the board. But I went home that night and I could not go to sleep until I had written him a letter. I could not rest until I had written him a letter privately to address that allegation. His family was being abusive to other people in the church, namely my family. We were getting the cold shoulder. We were being treated in a frosty way. My kids were getting picked on by members of this family. My kids, my wife was being shunned by his wife when she would say good morning on a Sunday morning. And so I write him a private letter in which I affirm him, in which I encourage him, in which I speak well of him and his family. But I also endeavored to correct him from the scriptures. About my age, he was not conducting himself in a mature, godly way. And the response I got from him and from the rest of the elders when I was called in for a several hours long meeting about my letter to him, my private letter to him, which he never replied to privately, but rather he distributed to he distributed it to the rest of the elders, and then they confronted me. Actually, they surprised me. I didn't realize that's what they were calling the meeting about. Several, several, several months later, their biggest complaint about my letter to him was that it was not very encouraging. And I was nonplussed. I said, I wasn't first and foremost trying to encourage him, except I was trying to encourage him to fulfill his responsibility as an elder instead of running interference for bad behavior from members of his own family. I wasn't trying to encourage him first and foremost. I was first and foremost trying to correct him from the scriptures because what he's doing and what he's not doing should accord with the scriptures. And I was trying to do it privately because I'm not trying to hurt his reputation and I'm not trying to damage him. I'm trying to build him up. But that is just to say, that is exactly the point All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And we in the church think, thanks to men like James Forsyth and the Gospel Coalition and K-Love Christianity and Lifeway Bookstores and Veggie Tales, we think that all scripture is breathed out by God and only profitable for encouragement. We don't think that there's a place for correction or calls to repentance. We like the teaching, so long as it's neutral, values neutral, more or less, and self-affirming, and therapeutic. Oh, we like that. We like that. Training in righteousness is the fourth thing. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness to the end, to the goal that the man of God may be complete, that the man of God may be complete, which is to say, the man of God can be incomplete, which is to say, if that's you, if that's me, if that's us, If we are the man of God who is incomplete, are we really being the church at its best? Are we? Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God, that the man of God may be complete. Complete. All scripture. Which is to say, if there are portions of the text that we ignore, marginalize, qualify to death, interpret in ways that make them inapplicable, 
and irrelevant, we are contradicting what the Apostle Paul writes here. We are saying that not all Scripture is breathed out by God, and that not all Scripture is profitable, or that it's not profitable for God's Word to be used for anything more than teaching and training. So we don't want the reproof, and we don't want the correction, and we don't want to be complete, and we don't want to be equipped for every good work. And what that might indicate is that we do not have a grasp of 2 Timothy 1, 6-7. through 7. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. This is the same letter, just the first chapter instead of the third. Same letter to Timothy written by Paul in the New Testament. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Well, yeah, okay, so self-control, about that. Like, can't I just exercise my self-control to do what the world wants me to do? Can't I? Can't it be windy sometimes? Can't it? Can't it be windy? No, no, no. All this liberty stuff. Christians shouldn't go on about being independent. That's not very Christian. Christians shouldn't go on about being self-controlled instead of other people controlling them through manipulation and bullying. That's not very Christian. Oh, but it says God gave us a spirit of self-control. Oh, and power too. Power, power, power. Well, but Michel Foucault says all truth claims are just a disguise for the will to power. You know, actually, like sometimes power is necessary to do good works. We have embraced weakness. And we think, all too many of us, we think that weakness is necessary so that we don't have temptation. I would remind you of something that Jordan Peterson said, speaking of Jordan Peterson being removed from Twitter, a good man is not a weak man. A good man is a very dangerous man who keeps himself under control very deliberately. A good man is not a weak man. We shouldn't try to be weak so that we never have any temptation. And the church very often in 2,000 years has gone off the rails thinking if we do castrate ourselves, then we will be the most fruitful. It just ain't so. Not only is it not so, it's not profitable. Profit is a good thing, but it has to be on God's terms. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness are all good things, but they have to be on God's terms. That's why you're reading God's word, the man of God being complete, being a whole person, heart, mind, body, and soul, equipped for every good work. That's a good thing. By God's grace, he has prepared good works for us. That's the church at its best. And yes, celebratory, joyful, openly, without apology, not rubbing people's noses in it, but nor is it fair for you to suggest, James Forsyth, that for Christians to be celebrating right now is the same thing as rubbing leftists' noses in their defeat on this point. The wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. It would be folly for us to say, That because the wicked flee when no one pursues, the righteous also, so they can be winsome, should flee when no one pursues. Hey, what are we running from? I just saw you running and I figured I'd run too. Yeah, I'm really sad too. Yeah, it's really really a bummer. Can I tell you about Jesus? I've got some good news. Is that biblical? Is that what God calls us to? You know, last thought, and I got to run. My sons, my oldest two, they went out and did evangelism yesterday at the local parks here in Greeley, Colorado. And they are going to DTC coming up next month. 
discipleship training camp, I think is what it is. Something like that. I just keep hearing it called DTC. So I'll call it DTC as well. And this evangelism training last night was towards the end of DTC. As in, we're going to go and do evangelism. We're going to go tell people about Jesus. That's what that is. We're going to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. My son, Josiah, went along with two others. One of the Pavliks, I believe, boys, and also uh, Maddie Brownrigg. And they happened to (laughs) encounter a group of three or four other young people in the park who had their Bibles. And what's been described to me reminds me a little bit of that scene from Anchorman, where you have the various news stations and their crews, their uh, news crews meeting up in this parking lot and then commences a battle between the various TV news stations, local news stations in town. And it just gets way out of hand and it's very funny. And Steve Carell kills a guy with a trident and should probably go into hiding. It's very, very funny. But nobody got killed with a trident. That's good. Uh, They did have a little bit of a debate. And I don't know where these other kids, uh, young people, I guess Josiah was thinking, the one young man who was talking couldn't have been older than 25. It might be a little bit older than high school students, but uh, this guy talked really, really fast and wanted my son and the two other high schoolers he was with to know that Jesus actually has already come back a second time and he will come back again for the last judgment only when everyone knows that he's already come back a second time, like three years after the resurrection to put an end to false teaching, which is ironic because apparently we still have false teaching if we don't think that he came back a second time already. So explain that one to me. But they had this back and forth. They had this debate. And this guy is talking really, really fast. And my son said he couldn't keep track of the logical fallacies. It was like every sentence was jam-packed with logical fallacies. And then he would really quick change the subject when he was asked a question. Well, okay, well, where does it say that in the scriptures? Well, yeah, but you have to interpret this one correctly. And nobody interprets that correctly. But I, I've, you know, listen, believe me, I've been to a lot of churches and I've talked with a lot of pastors, and I, I know the Bible inside and out. You should just take my word for it. And it's like, uh, you know, actually, I've been warned about people like you. No. But if we only think that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for encouragement, what do we do with that guy? By the way, too, if anybody out there who's listening is familiar with that position, that doctrine, uh, do tell who believes that. Where are they coming from? I kind of want to do a little bit of research. I know post-millennials have a very different view on end times prophecy and what all has been fulfilled and what hasn't been yet. I understand that in a peripheral way. I haven't studied it in depth. You can't study everything all at once. I am not an expert on everything. I should like to understand that a little bit better. But nevertheless, all scripture is breathed out by God. And the man of God is supposed to be complete. God wants us to be complete, equipped for every good work. But we have to be using his word for all of the things that he gave us it for, teaching, reproof, correction, and training. By God's grace, we can, because God gave us a spirit not of fear or timidity, but of power and love and self-control. 
It's time we started acting like it. That's the church at its best. But that's the that's the conclusion of the time that I've got. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. I got stuff cooking today. Need to update personal organizers and have some coffee with my wife. Long overdue. It's been a busy, busy, busy summer so far. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.